Hey, hey, happy Tuesday and welcome back to Pathfinder. On episode 12, our guest is Emiliano Cargman, the CEO and co-founder of Satellogic. Emiliano's been building satellites at Satellogic since 2010 and took the company public in January. Over the last 25 years, Emiliano co-founded three other companies, working in cybersecurity, software, and also having a brief stint in venture. Emiliano has also consulted for the World Bank and has a formal background in number theory and philosophy. Same. We go the distance in this conversation from Earth observing satellite fleets, tech stacks, the trials and tribulations of SPACs, small launch market, and much more. But I'll shut up so you can hear more about it directly from someone smarter than me. Before we do that, though, a word from today's sponsor. Our reliance on satellites for navigation, communications, commerce, and intelligence has grown exponentially in the new space economy. Unfortunately, the risks have grown as well, and the need to prioritize cybersecurity around space assets is critical. Spider-Oak Mission Systems builds space cybersecurity products for military, commercial, and civilian operators. Their orbit secure solution is the first to deliver zero trust security to zero gravity environments, protecting space communication, command, control, data transmission, storage, and integrity to data level. To learn more about orbit secure, check out their website at spideroak-ms.com. Now let's dive into Pathfinder 12 with Satellogic CEO Emiliano Cargerman. Ano, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Where are you calling in from today? Because I know you have offices all over the world. Yeah, I'm in my old office in Buenos Aires, okay. Argentina. Um, and uh, they kind of dismantled it already. There's uh, a few things. Yeah. What, what's that satellite? Is that a satellite on that, that shelf behind you? Uh, I think that's a model of a space station. Oh, it's a model of a space station. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. So <laughs> you, where, where are you... Where are you based? You know, I know you, and, and I actually be great if you could walk listeners through where your, where all your offices are. And then what I'm curious about is like how you split time between all of them. Sure. I'm, I'm currently based in, in Europe. I'm based in Barcelona and Spain. We have a team there of around 50 people and in, in Barcelona and most of the C-suite of the company sits in Barcelona today. Um, we have a large operation here in Buenos Aires, uh, in Argentina in general, we have around. 200 people probably, um, most of the satellite design and engineering is done, uh, here. And this is where mm -hmm. we started. Uh, we then have a, uh, manufacturing facility, a pilot, we call it a pilot plant, pilot manufacturing facility across the border from Argentina, across the river in Uruguay and Montevideo. Um, and, um, uh, then we have a team in the U S, uh, uh, most of our back office is in the U.S. or CFO sits there. Uh, we also have a large business development and sales team in the U.S. And we have separately or Satellogic North America subsidiary, mm -hmm. uh, which is also U.S. focused. And then the team in Barcelona that I mentioned, uh, and we are setting up a high throughput manufacturing facility in the Netherlands, uh, close to Rotterdam. Uh, so that's, I think, the final location. Then we have people all around the world because now, thanks to yeah. uh, work from home, we have people in a very large number of uh, cities around the planet uh, enjoying a good life. Right. So, so what functions of when you're talking about, you know, operating a, a constellation and, and the bread and butter of what Satellogic does, what functions can be, be done remotely and what obviously, you know, like assembly integration manufacturing, you need to be co-located for that. But to your point, you know, there, there are a lot of aspects of this that you don't necessarily, we, you know, we don't need to be face to face to do a good job and be productive. Yeah. I think look, anything that's screwing things together and, and plugging, you know, cables and things like that, you, you mm -hmm. need to be on site. Right. And, uh, and keeping or manufacturing going through the pandemic was, uh, you know, complicated and all those things, right? And and that needs to be that needs to be inside. Uh, for the rest of it, it all in principle mm -hmm. can be remote, right? We obviously have inner engineering uh, uh, side where we do satellite design. You know, part of the engineering you need you do need in some things access to a lab. You need access to electronics. You need access to you know optical equipment or stuff that we're as you know we're a completely vertically integrated company. So we design all those different things: the, the electronics, the sense the cameras, the telescopes and so on. So that requires equipment that typically requires at least people to go to a central location every once in a while. But the reality is, uh, we were pretty distributed before the pandemic and, uh, throughout the pandemic, we, you know, we really transitioned yeah. very, very easily into, you know, people moving around and, and floating around. I, I miss, you know, 
being in the same room with with all of my company, but I think those days in a sense are gone, right? Uh, we we have a yeah. large team, and so uh, you know when I when I have the opportunity to visit, uh, I come to 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 Buenos Aires maybe you know a couple of times a year, and I go to Uruguay maybe a couple of times a year, and go to the Netherlands a couple of times a year, and so on. Uh, you know, it's great to meet people and also gives the excuse of people. I, I, I meet with them and they're like, oh, who are you? I met you. On this so stepping back a second and then we'll return to some of the topics that we've already touched on, including my, my favorite buzzword of the space industry, vertical integration, but we'll set that aside for a second. How did you get into space and what were the key experiences or, you know, education or just, yeah parts of your, your life journey that got you to where, you know, up, up to founding yeah. a space company. Yeah, I, I guess completely by chance, right? Like I, I'm, I'm originally from Argentina. I grew up not very far from where I'm sitting today. Um, you know, when you were growing up in Argentina, uh, in the, uh, late seventies, early eighties, you, you didn't think about aerospace yeah. as a career path, right? Like, you, you know, it was something that was done somewhere else. Right. So, so I never thought you know, about aerospace. I wanted to be a mathematician. <laughs> that was my goal in life. That's why I studied in school. You know, I'm a frustrated <laughs> mathematician for, for all it's worth. But, uh, I also, you're a reformed mathematician. Reformed. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been, I've been building technology and technology companies all of my life. Right? I taught myself to program computers when I was nine years old. Um, I started my first software company when I was 15 years old and, uh, ended up hiring a bunch of my high school friends. Um, I started my first information security company when I was 19, uh, and that was my area of expertise. Um, you know, at the time I spent a lot of my teenage years hacking into computer systems to learn how computers worked. And what were you, were you, uh, were you a white hat or a, a black hat? Yes. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> but in. But in 20, you know, when I was 19 years old, I actually started an information security company and, and you know, it began, it, it began to be kind of my career path. I, I, we ended up bringing that company to around 450 people around the world. We were doing, you know, um, tens and tens of millions of dollars in revenue, 80% of fortune 500 companies were customers. We built, uh, you know, automated penetration testing software. So basically software that allowed people to break into their own computer systems and figure out where the problems were. And that did, you know, it was great. I spent, uh, like 12 years building that company. Um, and it was an amazing experience. I learned a lot about technology, about building technology companies. Then I, I, I jumped into the, uh, you know, the other side of the table to the dark side and, and I started a venture capital firm. Um, and, uh, I did early stage investment in tech companies for, uh, you know, four years mm -hmm. roughly, um, and, uh, hated probably every mm -hmm. minute of it. Right. It was like one of the most frustrating experiences in my life to, to, to invest in, in other people. Um, uh, not because I, you know, I don't, I don't like investing in other people, but it, it was very frustrating. I was trying to jump to our yeah. side of the table all yeah. the time. Right. I was like yeah, having a hard time, you know, taking a back seat and, uh, you already had the entrepreneurial bug. It sounds like, yeah, it's the only thing I've been doing all my life. Right. I never held an honest job. It was basically all the companies that I started and, uh, and that's what I, you know, basically been doing. So at some point after I got tired of investing in other people's businesses, I decided to start a new company. And, uh, I really was looking at, uh, you know, the intersection between food production and distribution and energy generation and distribution and how we manage natural resources to do those things in a way that, you know, we don't kill you know, the resources of future generations. Yeah. And that got me thinking about how we collect data of what's happening in the world. And, and, you know, that got me to realize that we should be able, you know, in the 21st century, we should be able to build an infrastructure to figure out what's happening on planet earth. And, uh, when I started thinking what that infrastructure looked like, that's what got okay. me to space, right? I started to look at, uh, satellites as a way to collect data around the planet. Uh, I started to realize that every way we had of collecting data around the planet is very difficult to scale and very expensive inherently, but satellites to me were in particular a good position to do this in a way that that made sense. And the only problem then was, yeah, 
maybe you had to go and build satellites that were a thousand times less expensive than what people were yeah. doing at the time. And that's what got me down the rabbit hole. One, it's, it's interesting for me. I think there's a commonality between what you're saying and what some past guests have said, just in terms of like not a nonlinear path or moving laterally into aerospace. And I think that that's pretty fascinating, but, but more so it's, it's good to hear sort of that experience and credentials in the bone of feet as leading up to satellite logic. And now, why don't you in, in 60 seconds or less, if you can just tell us the story of satellite logic from inception, maybe up to, to 2020 or so, and then we'll dig in from there. Well, it started with this idea, right? The idea that, uh, you know, we could build a more efficient way to, to see what's happening on earth. Um, and, uh, to do that, the vision was the same from the very start. Uh, the goal was to remap the entire surface of the planet at high enough resolution and high enough frequency that we could deliver this data to everybody in the world at the right price, right? But to remap the earth in high resolution, you need to put a bunch of satellites mm -hmm. in orbit. And, you know, high resolution earth observation satellites were around $500 million a piece uh, when I started thinking about this in 2010. Um, so we needed to figure out a way to build satellites for significantly yeah. small cost, right? So the first eight years of the company, I think were the story of how we got to the unit economics, uh, of the satellites, right? How we got to build satellites are $500,000 in building materials that we can put in orbit for a fully loaded cost that's less than a million bucks. And that can, you know, image the earth continuously at sub meter resolution, right? That took us yeah. a long time. We had to develop new camera technology to do it. We had to um, become a completely vertically integrated company to use the phrase that we <laughs> like, but you know, basically meaning we had to go and build everything that goes into our satellites to reach our cost targets. And then we had to put this technology in order mm -hmm. to make it work over several generations. That got us to roughly 2020 at a point where, you know, we had we, in 2020, actually we did or. Uh, we did what we call a dedicated launch, which is we filled one rocket, with 10 satellites and put 10 satellites in orbit at the same time. And we went from, who'd you launch with? Uh, that was a long okay. March rocket. Okay. So that, and so I was launched mm -hmm. from China actually. And, uh, and that got us to a point where, you know, we went from, we had a few prototypes in orbit validating the technology to, we actually have a constellation of satellites out there that are starting to collect data over all of the earth every single day. I think the CapEx conversation here, which we'll, we'll touch on later more, and I think it's pretty fascinating and I'm glad that you already have cited some numbers just for the, for, for the audience, what are some other sort of specs? I think that, that speak to the tailwinds driving your business and some of your, your peers and counterparts. And so I'm talking more, you, you've talked about price, but what about form factor, that sort of thing, like the, the overall size of these satellites. Sure. Or satellite. Yeah, sure. So our satellites are around 42 kilograms. Um, that's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. 80 pounds, let's say something like that. Um, they are, uh, you know, roughly the size of a small, you know, wine yeah. fridge, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they're extremely efficient in the way they're built, right? They're, you know, at 40 kilograms, we're probably around half to a third of, of the mass of comparable platforms, right? That has to do also with this idea of vertical integration and being able to make, uh, trade-offs in, in design, you know, and, and, and also it reduces our launch mm -hmm. cost for sure. I think the most important thing of the satellites, which is there's two things I say are very, very unique. One is the image quality that yeah. we get from our camera design, from our technology. So we are best of class imagery from any small platform, right? If, and this is, you know, the NGA did their own um, uh, kind of Olympics of imagery and they gave us the gold medal for image quality, right? But then the U.S. Geological Survey did their own analysis of our imagery, independent analysis for imagery, and you see the published results, and we're literally, you know, significantly better than any other small satellite provider, but actually match a lot of the numbers of uh, significantly more expensive platforms like Maxers, Warney 3, and so on, right? So quality is one of the characteristics that sets us apart. And the other one is exactly the union yeah. costs, right? It's the yeah. CapEx cost. So 
or satellites are very low cost, but also they collect, you know, they're not only I maybe 10 times lower cost than other small satellite platforms that collect high resolution imagery, but they also collect 10 times more data, right? So when you look at or cost of acquiring a square kilometer of data in the ground, we're probably around hundred times better unit economics than any other company in the planet today. And that is the second thing that we have going for us. It's like really, really good image quality, right? Best of class image quality and significantly lower cost of data acquisition. So those two things are, you know, I, I always say two of the three stool, yeah. you know, legs in the stool that, that we need to, you know, to, to own or portion of this market, right? And the third one for us is just priding ourselves in, in delivering the best possible service okay. for customers, right? And being very flexible. And yeah. So when, when we first spoke, and this was a few months ago, I think I want to say May, maybe you touched on, you know, satellite mission is creating a live catalog of earth and doing so on a daily basis in a global scale. And some of the comments that you made to me, and, and you've actually almost touched on it here, but just the, the cost of collecting observations when you're looking at, you know, competing options on orbit, but, but even more importantly, a lot of these, a lot of, you know, what you are trying to do, what planets trying to do, like on the scale, they're trying to do it. Like no one has really done it before. And like the alternatives, I suppose would be like aerial imagery or, or, or as you said to me, you know, I think in, in situ, like, like sending someone out to a site to make, to make some, some sort of observations. So it seems fairly intuitive as to why, you know, if you could get something on orbit and do so at a low enough cost that this would just be orders of magnitude cheaper, but I want to hear it from you and you know, what the alternatives are maybe for a lot of your customers who are, who are coming into EO earth observation for the first time. And previously we're like flying like Cessnas or, or drones or something. No, and, and you're absolutely correct. You know, this was the kind of the original insight when we started the company was this, the fact that the biggest driver of cost for, um, uh, for collecting data around the world is not the cost of the platforms. It's not the Cessna is expensive, you know, and the satellite is expensive, but it's actually the opportunity. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter how you're collecting data in the planet, right? But if you're flying a Cessna, you know, in one particular flight path, you're not flying mm -hmm. it somewhere else, right? you're sending a drone to one particular location, you're not sending it somewhere else, right? If you send a crew, you know, to go take a measurement in the ground and report what they see, right? You have to pick where you send them. So if you, you know, collect data in one place, you're not collecting place data in many other places. This inherent opportunity cost is the single most important factor in the cost of data acquisition, yeah. right? You have to decide ahead of time what you're going to focus your resources on, right? Where you're going to go. And the same thing happens with satellites, by the way. So with that, tasking? Right? If you're pointing a high-resolution imaging satellite, you're tasking the satellite to go collect data somewhere, right? You're not collecting somewhere else. What this means is that, you know, there's a set of applications that you can serve at the opportunity cost of each of these technologies, mm -hmm. right? And for satellites in particular, what happens is you end up in a situation where high resolution satellites are only used to serve or mostly used to serve defense and intelligence customers, because these are the guys that can pay the opportunity cost, whatever yeah. it is. Right? Yeah. And, and that's the situation today. In now for other things, you know, if you're an agricultural company and you have a number of, you know, uh, uh, hectares of land or acres of land that you have to monitor, you're going to find ways to do this, right? You're going to send someone to go see how tall the corn is, right? You're going to, you know, use some sensors in, in, in your harvesting equipment. You're going to find ways to do, to collect data about what's happening. It's going to be incomplete and it's going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. The thinking here is super simple is once we are remapping the entire surface of the planet every single day in high resolution, we don't have the opportunity cost for anybody that wants daily data, we can serve them the data, right? essentially out of capital, mm -hmm. right? And once you do that, you know, you basically start reaching, you know, near zero marginal cost for delivering data to customer, right? Like very similarly to what we have in a SaaS company or in any, any internet service, right? Where serving a new customer doesn't really carry with it, you know, the decision of not serving yeah. other customers, right? You don't have to pick who you serve. Once you are in that point, you can actually start replacing a lot of these other means of data collection that are less efficient, like sending helicopters and drones mm -hmm. and so on, right? And 
that's the thesis at the bottom of why um, uh, we argue this is a total addressable market that's north of $140 billion that we can address with the technology that we have, that no other satellite company is in a position to go after. So on the topic of sensors and cameras, there's, you know, you, you have a bunch of different modalities in terms of, of, of what's possible. And we don't have to go through all of them today. That's kind of beyond the remit of this conversation, but you know, there's multi-spectral, hyperspectral, SAR, optical, et cetera, et cetera. Can you, can you explain for the audience who's not familiar where you sort of sit and what types of, you know, sensors and cameras that you are specialized in and developing and, and, you know, currently flying on orbit, operating on orbit. Yeah. Or, or, you know, our, our workhorses or main payload is a sub meter resolution optical camera. So it's a 70 centimeter resolution, what is called multispectral camera that take images in red, green, blue, and near infrared. Right. Um, and, and. You know, this is really good to do object identification, to do classification, right? To understand what's happening in the ground. The sub-meter resolution gives you the granularity that you need to see stuff that is happening at a human yeah. scale, right? I, I tend to joke that, you know, there's a reason we call a meter a meter, right? Particularly, um, you know, for, for those of us that still rely on the metric system, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but there, there's a reason for it, right? Because that's actually the scale at which human activity happens, right? So sampling the world at sub meter resolution really allows you to see small objects, you know, small cars, small boats, individual trees in a plantation, you know, building and construction work, um, heavy machinery, you know, the kind uh, uh, infrastructure like roads and, and so on. So this is the kind of things that you want to monitor on a daily yeah. basis, right? On top of that, we have another sensor, which is a hyperspectral camera. That is a sophisticated way of saying, you know, you can slice now the spectrum of visible light, uh, into more than just four bands. And we can collect instead of red, green, blue, and your infrared with the hyperspectral camera, we can collect up to 30 bands of the spectrum. Um, and that gives you some understanding of the chemical and molecular processes of what you're looking at. So really good for things like water quality or uh, plant health, right? And the kind of things that you might want to monitor, for example, for uh, uh, environmental monitoring and temperature climate change, mm -hmm. right? Um, that in, to a large extent, there's a lot of interest in the world around hyperspectral, but to a large extent, you know, we still consider this to be kind of an experimental payload in the sense that the market for it is not so well developed. Customers still don't know exactly how to use it. And we do believe there's a lot of value there, uh, but this value will be just shown and it, you know, yeah, time, it, right? but we're collecting. Especially as it relates to commercial customers, right? You know, I hear all the time that, especially with, with, with going beyond just, you know, imagery there, there isn't a familiarity or the in-house teams, that sort of thing. Or any sort of, you know, like th there's no, there's just no inherent ability or capacity to understand like the value of this and how to work with it. Whereas governments, of course, you know, defense and intelligence and, and civil, like they have been, they've been, you know, operating some of this hardware and they're just much more familiar with it. And there's that competency is already there. So the value prop is much more, is much more clear. Is that, do I have that right? Totally. I look for no, a hundred percent. Like, look for commercial customers in general, what I would say is, you know, your customers, they don't care if you're collecting data in SAR or in optical yeah. or, you know, in hyperspect, like they care about, you know, the problem you're going to solve for them, how you can solve mm -hmm. that problem. Right. And, uh, what we find is, uh, you know, the data is not enough, right? Like we are a data provider. Uh, a lot of times we have to sit down with our commercial customers, you know, and help them figure out what they can do with data, how they can use this data. Right. And over time, we expect there need to be developed a very large ecosystem of value added companies that will take the kind of data that we create, both optical and, you know, with both multispectral and hyperspectral field and turn it into answers to questions for, you know, this addressable market in the commercial sector to really uh, flourish. Right. On the defense and intelligence side, you're correct. I mean, they have been flying uh, this technology, let's say drones and in, and in, and manned, um, uh, you know, aircraft for, for yeah. a while. They have their own internal teams that know how to analyze the data, the kind of data, you know, and, and they know what to do with it. Uh, so that's obviously a market both for optical imagery and for, you know, multispectral and hyperspectral. I think it's, it's, it's clearly a, a better 
uh, known market, well-developed market, and there's obviously immediate opportunities. Yeah. I, I think that's pretty fascinating that a lot of companies like yourself and, you know, some of your, your peers, it seems to me that a current focus is st staffing up on sort of sales and marketing to be able to go after those commercial markets that are, that are, are non, non-existent, you know, uh, at worst or, or, or very, you know, less mature at best, I would say, um, is that, is that, does that, you know, reflect your strategy and, uh, and we'll, we can talk about going public later, but just in terms of like, as you're at this, this point in the company, are you, are, is that a focus, you know, like sales and marketing? I don't think that it's a question of, you know, doing more sales and marketing to really get to the commercial customers. Right. I think, uh, uh you know, our vision is that to get to the commercial customers, you need to be able to deliver the data at the right price point first. Then you need to be able to deliver the solutions on top of the data uh, at the right mm -hmm. price point, right? But but it starts with the data. If the data collection is, you know, is not at the right price point, if you, there's just whole, you know, huge swans of the market that you're just not going to be able to go after, no matter how good the solution is, yeah. right? And no matter how good your marketing and sales mm -hmm. are, right? Like if you, you know, if you're delivering a product to, you know, farmers around the world and it costs them more to monitor their fields than what they're expecting to get out of it, right? You're just not going to pay. Yeah. There's no market. Yeah. Anymore, right. You need to be able to deliver that product at the right price. Right. right. And I think that's the biggest bottom here. That's why we say, you know, a lot of the commercial market starts to be viable once you remap the earth every week, um, at some yeah. resolution, yeah. right? Because at a weekly cadence, you know, agriculture, forestry, insurance, commodity trading, um, you know, infrastructure monitoring for energy, these things start to make sense once you can deliver the data at the right price point every single week to mm -hmm. the customer, right? So our focus today in terms of say to marketing is on one hand, we're working very closely with the existing earth observation market, which is mostly defense and intelligence, mm -hmm. right? This is us, us allies around the world, delivering data to, for, for basically monitoring, uh, for defense and intelligence mm -hmm. applications, right? This is most of the existing market. On top of that, yes, there are some commercial applications where the price point is right today to do at a certain scale, right? And I would argue this is probably today still kind of a fortune 1000, you know, realm of certain applications that still make sense and where the price points at which we can deliver the data today makes sense for these customers, right? And of course we are the lower cost supplier of data, so we can expand this a little bit more because of our data points. But as long as you have this opportunity cost of pointing yeah. satellites, right? you're still going to have to choose which customers you right. serve, right? And that limits a lot of what you can do. Then, uh, you know, on top of that, we have been working a lot with uh, uh, um, what I would call kind of a second tier of countries around the world that uh, have been historically priced out yeah. from being able to have their own Earth observation capabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because of our United Economics, uh, because of the capacity of constellation we have out there, you know, today with 26 satellites in orbit, we have, uh, the largest fleet of high resolution imaging satellites in the world, but also by far the largest data collection capacity, right? In terms of square kilometers that we can collect, it's probably, you know, more than the rest of the industry combined. Right. And, um, and so with that capacity at that cost, we can offer kind of an entry point for all these countries that have been historically pressed out from having their own capabilities to suddenly be able to have their own national programs. And that's kind of the other focus for us today in terms of, of sales and marketing, right? On the commercial, wider commercial market, our strategy is continue to build up our constellation, open access to our platform, and start to see that traction as we start hitting the point where we get weekly remaps yeah. here, right? hopefully in the next uh, 12 yeah. months. 12 to 18 months. I think the opportunity costs, the unit economics, and then also, I mean, you haven't said it, but, but essentially, you know, economies of scale as you build out a constellation. I think that, that discussion is fascinating. We're going to take a quick break. And then I want to ask you about tech tailwinds. Time for a short break to hear about our sponsors again. Space is the new frontier for cybersecurity. Spider Oak Mission Systems builds space cybersecurity solutions for civilian, military, and commercial space operations. 
Their Orbit Secure Protocol delivers zero trust security to zero gravity environments, protecting space communication, command, control, data transmission, storage, and integrity at the data level. To learn more about how zero trust architectures will revolutionize security in new space, download the new NSR Spider Oak sponsored white paper titled Space Cybersecurity, Current State and Future Needs. You can find that white paper at spacecyber.com and that's spacecyber.com, easy link to remember. Or check out their website at spideroak-ms.com and tell them Pathfinder sent you. Okay, we are back. And as I mentioned, I want to talk about tech tailwinds. Last time we spoke, I think you really shaped my thinking. You know, there's there's all these canonical examples of, of what has enabled businesses like yours. One being the hardware, the miniaturization, that sort of thing. But you you ran through like a list of all these different things that basically make your business possible. Uh, and, and there, you know, technology changes. So can you, can you run through those, like the, the trends, everything, and, and I'll get us started. You know, everyone knows this one, like launch cost dropping, but, uh, let's, let's go from there. So no, so yeah, so that's, that's super interesting. And it's, it's not so much launch cost dropping. That's a part of it, but it's also a standardization of, of launch interface, okay. right? is the fact that, uh, you know, uh, a decade ago, if you want, uh, launch interfaces started to get standardized, right? And it was the ESPA ports on one side, but it was also the, you know, the CubeSats and the CubeSat form factor and all the deployers for CubeSats, you know, that started to allow people to kind of put together a satellite and then find where they were going to launch, mm -hmm. right? And on top of that, yeah, launch cost. Uh, particularly over the last couple of years, I would say, you know, up until then, you know, kind of launch costs had been in the realm of $10,000 per kilogram as a lower limit for a long time, right? But, you know, SpaceX, um, and when they started their ride program, like basically brought this down to around half of that, which is, you know, pretty amazing. Yeah. And I, uh, definitely that has an effect, right? But, but I would say this is the first trend, right? Standardization of launch interfaces and launch cost dropping, like availability of launch, obviously a uh, necessity. Mm -hmm. On top of that, I would say computer-aided design, computer-aided, you know, testing, computer-aided engineering, definitely a requirement here in a sense, right? For us to, you know, we can design a satellite in time, in, in a time that, you know, uh, that is very, very short compared to traditional satellites. And a lot of that is because we're using a lot of tools, right? To be able to make sure. What does that look like today? You know, how long, how long does it take to make a satellite end to end? To design a new generation of our satellites, it takes us around nine months, right? End to end for a new generation. I'll just, I, most people are familiar with some, but that's, that's a very quick development cycle when you're talking about space. Yeah. And look, and we, for the first three satellites that we did, right, with completely different models, this first three prototypes that we did, we did a completely new model every nine months, right? Mm -hmm. This was back in 2012, 2013, 2014. Um, and, uh, and so that's, you know, that allows you to, you know, we don't have to go back to doing full environmental tests. And I'll give you an example. You know, we have so much data now about our satellite operations and our models that we don't do um, uh, thermal vacuum testing anymore. Yeah. We haven't done thermal vacuum testing in our satellites for several generations now because we have our models so well, uh, you know, uh, uh, so, so well done now that we don't have to, we know what the result is going to be. Right. And so that really limits a lot, uh, you know, reduces a lot of the, of the time. Then on top of that, you know, uh, you have, of course, the, the, we, we couldn't be doing what we're doing if we weren't supported by the whole supply chain of commercial electronics yeah. right? and just the stuff that's built for, you know, cell phones yeah, and, yeah. and laptops and so on, right? Like we're drawing very, very heavily from that, but also now from the automotive industry and some of the stuff that's being built for kind of autonomous cars and so on. So we're drawing very heavily from there too, right? And these are trends that kind of go uh, well, well beyond what you know, what, what the aerospace industry is doing in itself. Right. Uh, on top of that. Yeah. 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 And on top of that, I think the other one is to me is, 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 you know, this revolution from 2012 until now of machine learning and AI and so on. And, and you know, because you can say, I'm going to go and remap the entire surface of the earth every day. Right. But if you have to put people to look at every pixel, you know, that's just not going to scale the way you want, right? It's impossible. <laughs> so, you know, we're drawing heavily from that to be able to say, okay, 
you scan the earth every single day. Then we can run algorithms on top and we can, you know, see the stuff that actually people needs to go and look at. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I mentioned other trends the last time we spoke, but I think these are some, to me, these are some of the most important. No, trends. no, that, that hit on everything. And we didn't talk about this last time, but I do want to ask about it. What are like the, what are the biggest bottlenecks? You know, is it, is it, I mean, processing, we talked about processing power. We've talked about, you know, increasing resolution and imaging capabilities, that sort of thing. Uh, the hardware costs dropping to a point that is, it is feasible to, you know, hit this, hit this critical mass of, of, of satellites on orbit and thus, you know, not have to choose where to point them. What, what, what are the, what are the, uh, I don't know. What, what, what are the biggest constraints? Is it like, is it like down length? Yeah. Is it ground? Like, I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what, what needs, what still needs to be developed more in the coming years, not just for you, but for commercial space writ large. I think that look, the biggest constraints continue, you know, are, the first one I would say is, is energy availability, like power availability in orbit, right? It's like to, you know, that's always constraint, okay. right? Like it's, it's, it's both mass it's real estate in the satellites, right? It's cost for the batteries and solar panels, right? It's, you know, how much energy you have available, right. To, to play with that's, that's obviously always a constraint, right. And in the end, it's, it's really is how much value per joule you can mm -hmm. generate mm -hmm. right in orbit. And, and it goes down to that and you can measure that. Uh, on top of that, related to that, I think you, you, you know, I would talk about downlink, uh, capacity that's both related to energy availability in orbit. It's also related to ground infrastructure, right. Mm -hmm. And how you bring the data down how that needs to evolve it, yeah. right? with, you know, remapping the earth every week at submeter resolution, we'll be generating around 280 petabytes of data, uh, every year that we need to break down. And yeah. when we're doing daily and, you know, we increase the resolution from 70 centimeters down to 40 centimeters, you know, now you're talking about 20 times that, yeah. right. And, and how you bring all this data down, obviously big challenge. What, what will your constrained in terms of the quality of resolution that you'll be able to sell in five years from now, is it going to be a technological problem or is it going to be limited by regulation? You know, and just to, to add a clarification there, like obviously like the, the U S you know, limits the, the quality that you can sell, like there is a limit, uh, and, and that, that the licensing process has, has been tweaked to, to, uh, to encourage or to, to, you know, accommodate. The, the reality that one competitors, uh, foreign competitors are selling better resolution. Um, but also just accommodating the reality of just sensors getting better. So, so yeah, just to, to sum up the question, you know, what is, are you going to be, are you going to be rate limited by like how good your sensors are, or is it going to be just by regulation and the sensitivity that comes with selling commercial imagery? I think you have to distinguish between two use cases here. One is revisiting using satellites to revisit specific points of interest mm -hmm. as fast as you can. Okay. Right. And, and this is particularly useful for defense, for example, you know, and in those cases, you want to get as much resolution as you can, right? It's like, you know, defense customer will pay for it. You know, it doesn't matter how much it costs. And, and this kind of the, the, the barrier here is, okay, how, you know, how can you make this cost efficient, but, but also it's about regulation, right? It's what are you allowed to capture? Yeah. What are you allowed to sell? Right. And, and, and that's the main, uh, you know, driver is how, you know, yes. I mean, if to collect at 10 centimeters of resolution, you know, you have to do it from, from uh, lower orbit at 400, 500 kilometers, you have to put a very, very large aperture, yeah. right. And, and, you know, that would mean a very expensive satellite in a sense, right. And those are the, you know, $2 billion spy satellites that people is building, right. And I don't see a company like us going into doing that, yeah. right? Like there are other ways of trying to get there, right? You could fly your satellites really, really low in very low Earth orbit to try to get, you know, high resolution. And, and that makes sense, right? And, uh, there's other trade-offs, of course, if satellite would live less, you have to refuel it in orbit, like there's constraints, right? But I, I, I think that's going to be developed over the next five years, right? Uh, the capacity to go and capture very, very high resolution data for specific point targets, you know, and do it frequently, 
that's going to be developed. We, you know, we have technology that can be adapted to do that, but where we excel is in remapping the entire surface of the mm -hmm. earth, right? Mm -hmm. And remapping the entire surface of the earth, the limitation is a little bit different because every time you double the resolution, you know, you increase by four times the amount of data that you have to download and then the amounts of data that you have to process, right? And in the end, there is, there are sweet spots all the time at, you know, what can you actually see in the imagery versus what's the cost of operating the infrastructure in orbit to remap the entire planet, right? Uh, today, I think those sweet spots for us give us, you know, this, this 70 centimeter weekly remap of the earth as the first spot. And then, and the next one for us is daily remaps of the entire planet down to 40 centimeters of resolution. Okay. I think once you hit that, you know, we're really going to have to look at the market and how the market is developing to see where that goes next. Right. So we're already touching on it. The next segment here is going to be, I would say kind of described as like sovereignty geopolitics. And I also do want to get to, to markets, but this one's, this question's out of left field, but I want to ask it before I forget, this is a conversation about earth observation, remote sensing, but I do have a question about launch because you are a customer. There's been a lot of talk recently that the like small sat CubeSat, like dedicated like vehicles that like that, that market is oversupplied, you know, and that there's just not enough demand out there for all of the various vehicles that are, are in development or even in the market. Do you have any thoughts on that before we move on? Yeah, I, of course I have thoughts now <laughs> how relevant they are to, to your listeners. I don't know, but my thoughts that, you know, from my perspective, uh, there's not a much use for small launch platforms, right? There is specific use cases for small launch platforms, like for example, responsive space, mm -hmm. I think it's really a clear use case, right? You want to put something in orbit in two days and you want to do it, you know, you have the, the satellite and the shelf and, and you want to put it in particular orbit, right? And, and, and I think there is a use case there that makes sense. Now the market for that, you know, there might be big bucks every time you do that because your customers will pay a lot for it, but it's a limited number of customers around the world and it's a limited market. Right. Mm -hmm. I think for, you know, deploying constellations of satellites, uh, you know, those small launchers make very little sense. Yeah. You want to be talking at least of, you know, uh, vehicles with the capacity to put a ton in orbit. Uh, you know, to kind of start talking about something that starts to make sense from the point of view of constellations, particularly because if you see kind of where constellations are going, you know, the rate range in which we are 40, 50 kilograms up to 150 kilograms, I think is you're going to be seeing that that's kind of the range at which people are building, you know, most of the useful yeah. uh, technology, right? Uh -huh. And so to put several of those in a plane, you need a launch vehicle that's capable of at least a ton. Yeah. So I think a ton to orbit, two tons to orbit, there is a market there. There's a few, of course, players that are going after that. And, and, and then obviously I think that the, there's a really big market once you start having, you know, large launch vehicles, that Starship coming online. Yeah. So on. yeah. I think there's going to be significantly larger, uh, market opportunity on putting those payloads in the end, in the right places, right. Being through tugs or through yeah. propulsion systems or other ways of actually going and distributing all that mass into right places in order. Yeah. But yeah. Small launch vehicles, I tend to agree, maybe kind of an entry point for companies to develop proof of concept and develop technologies that works and so on, but they have to outgrow that pretty quickly. And, and I think you're seeing that in the small launch vehicle. Right. Yeah. I actually have like space tugs in my notes of, of what I would want to ask about Starship too, but we'll have to save that for part two. Cause I want to move on to some other important topics. And one of the, sure. I'm just going to say three letters and let you unpack it. A DSC. Tell us what that is. Tell, tell us what, <laughs> tell us what it means and you know, how it speaks to what you're, you're doing differently at, at Satellogic or new opportunities like yeah. that you're opening for, for customers or for countries. A DSC for us, uh, we call a dedicated satellite constellation, a DSC, which is basically a way of packaging the capacity that we have in orbit. So that our national governments, uh, kind of consume it in a way that's, you know, that that's good for them. Right. And, and what it is basically is it allows one of our customers to get exclusive access to a number of our satellites on top of a particular area of interest, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you are, you know, small country, you want to monitor agriculture, you want to monitor your water, um, uh, infrastructure, you want to monitor your borders. Now you can, you know, instead of having to build and launch your satellites, they're buying a satellite, 
what you can do is you can access the service where you buy access to a number of our satellites, like 12 of our satellites over your territory. And you can use them as if they are their own, you own the data they generate, you own the tasking, it gives you the capacity, you know, to be kind of completely flexible that way. You download the data in your own ground station, you process it, you own, right? It gives a country the ability to basically start operating their own earth observation capacity in a service model. Right? Yeah, it's kind of yeah. the cloud computing equivalent of earth observation, right? Yeah. It's instead of going and building your own data center, right? You, you access the cloud, right? And this is the same, instead of building your own satellites, you know, just access or infrastructure and you take from it what you need, right? Add the way that you need it. But instead of making a large CapEx investment upfront, you're paying the service on a monthly or yearly basis. Yeah. Right? And that's, uh, you know, we can do this because, because of our unit economics, because we're putting all the satellites in orbit, right? Because we have all this excess capacity. Uh, we are in a position, you know, in a similar way as, you know, Amazon started, you know, selling AWS because they had all this excess capacity, right? Uh, that, you know, they had the data centers prepared for, you know, peak, uh, consumption. And I don't know, in the holiday season, right. And the rest of the year, they had all this available capacity, right? We are in a sense, uh, in a similar position, we have all this, you know, satellites out there that are designed to go and collect data very, very frequently and to remap the earth. Right. And, and, and this gives us a lot of excess capacity that we can put in the hands of customers at a really, really uh, good price point, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's fascinating because even the U S you know, space superpower that NASA is changing how it, yeah, going from an owner operator to procuring a lot of these commercial, commercial services off the shelf. Of course, the U S still has a lot of their own assets and so that won't change anytime soon, but a lot of these like newcomers to space, like there's just, there's so many space agencies that have been started in recent years. And, and, uh, I think that's, that, that's a really interesting opportunity. How does this topic relate to, to Ukraine and the work that you are doing in, in, well, not in Ukraine, I guess I would say over Ukraine. Yeah. So we have been, of course, uh, uh, you know, monitoring, we have a, a very large daily collection deck over Ukraine and the surrounding areas. We have been delivering data to Ukrainian government. Uh, we have been delivering data to allies, um, and NATO countries of what's going on in Ukraine. We also put a lot of data, um, out there in a partnership with Austria that we did for, you know, humanitarian organizations. We'll link to that in the show notes. And that's, uh, uh, you know, so that, you know, um, uh, uh, humanitarian organizations working on the ground can access situational data on a daily basis, right? On top mm -hmm. of that, or DSC model really adapts very, very well to a situation like this, right? Yeah. Because there are a lot of partners around the world that suddenly say, Hey, we really need a lot of tasking capacity on top of the Ukraine and surrounding areas. Right. And, and of course, if you look at the existing satellites out there, right, they're all essentially, they're all already spoken for. Right. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like Airbus, you know, you're not going to be accessing tasking capacity in Airbus satellites over the Ukraine anytime soon. Right. It's mm -hmm. just a lot of, uh, you know, other people that are higher than you on the queue. Right. Same thing <laughs> with Maxar satellites, you know, it's honestly, that's the truth. Right. And, yeah. uh, and for us, because we're not tied to any national, right. We're not a, you know, from that perspective or infrastructure is not, uh, licensed by the U S right. It's not licensed by France. So we have all this available capacity there and we are able through a DSC program, we're able to put it in the hands of the groups, including the Ukrainian government mm -hmm. that want to be able to task their own satellite, right? Figure out where they, they want to point to, right? Everybody can get data, you know, from their allies, right? And the U S is doing a really good job of, you know, sharing the data that they collect over Ukraine, uh, with their allies, right? But in the end, the ones who decide where they're pointing the satellites you know, are, is, is the U S right. Of course. And maybe Ukraine wants to point the satellite somewhere else. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where capacity like this helps. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of, I'd say space sovereignty, how, where do you sit as, as, and this is such a American centric question, classic, I'm being a classic American here, but I mean, you, you set up a, a U.S. subsidiary. What was the rationale behind that? Well, we have a, um, we have a, a subsidiary in the U S called Satellogic North America that is uh, foci and mitigated ready, which basically means it's a proxy, uh, and, and firewall from the rest of the company. So it can serve the U S government yeah. directly and it can work directly, you know, with, with 
absence security clearance for directly with the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. The reason to do that is, you know, we are not a U.S. company. Uh, our infrastructure is built and operated from outside of the U.S., but we understand that the capacity that we have in orbit and that we will be putting in orbit over the next few years is really useful also to the U.S. government, right? Yeah. And so we are really trying to figure out what's the best way of putting this capacity in the hands of the U.S. government and the local series really, you know, what yeah. allows us to do that, right? Yeah. Outside of the fact that we're not a U.S. company, we're completely aligned in terms of geopolitics and strategically to Western values and to the U.S. and its allies, right? So it's a very, very natural step Yeah. Uh, for us. It's, it's just finding the right way to put this capacity that we have in the hands of the U.S. You're not a U.S. company. You are listed, however, on a U.S. exchange. So you are, you know, you are public through a, a, a SPAC merger, reverse merger. Hindsight's 2020, you know, the, the whole, the whole market, any sort of growth stage tech company, chances are they're not really doing well right now, just given the drawdowns. Would you change, would you have changed any, anything as it relates to your decision and the timing to pursue a SPAC or are you happy with that decision? No, I think I, I wouldn't change anything. I think I'm happy with the decision, you know, taking the company public at the moment we did, uh, uh, give, gave us the resources that we needed to, uh, continue to roll out our satellites, to roll out our constellation, to serve our customers. It helps, it helps us increase our reach. It keeps us, you know, a nice platform to continue to grow. Obviously, if we were in a situation where we needed to go and raise money now again in the market, right? You know, the fact that the stock is trading uh, below where it started and so on, it would be hard for us. But luckily, we're not in a position where we need to do that. Yeah. Uh, we're in a position where we have enough levers in our company to manage our costs, to manage our, our, our expenses, and we are generating revenues. And so we're not in a position where we need to, you know, desperately go and raise money again. So, uh -huh. you know, we can wait in a sense until the market, you know, comes back to its uh, senses and it starts to embrace growth that companies again, uh, which will happen, uh, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, timing the market is always yeah. a losing proposition, right? Yeah, so, totally. <laughs> yeah. so, so for us, it's like, yeah, it, it's, this is the right tool for us to, to go on and, 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 and put the company in the next stage. And so I'm you know, fully embracing that. Uh, I'm sure it's less fun for you going out to raise money versus like working on product and company strategy and everything. So, so I'm sure, I'm sure it was helpful in that regard. What, well, we can, we can, uh, we can move on from SPACs, but we're, we're, I'm going to stay on like a not, not very fun topic, but like, uh, with, with supply chain issues, inflation, are you seeing that? Are you seeing that affect your business in a meaningful way? Inflation, not so much. Supply chain issues, you know, are, are, are you know, it make, make our lives more difficult for sure. I mean, uh, particularly because we're building maybe, you know, we're setting up to build a hundred satellites per year, right? That mm -hmm. for satellites is a very large number. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of building stuff in the world, right? When you're competing with the automotive industry, right? And your supply chain for commercial electronics, right? Obviously hundred of something, it's just not enough to, you know, to put you really, really high in the priority of, you know, of, of some of the suppliers, right? So, yeah. you know, that, that, that causes some pain. I mean, our team is working super hard. Uh, we have not faced any delays because of, of supply chain issues so far. Um, and we don't expect now, I mean, we had been, you know, accumulating a lot of the long lead items that we need to build our satellites in. We, you know, we're not seeing anything that makes us think that this will have an immediate impact in terms of rollout plans. Yeah. Um, in terms of costs, of course, you know, eventually inflation will, will, will hit all, all of this, uh, yeah. risk bonds, right? We haven't seen it yet, but inflation comes for everybody. Right. <laughs> And I would, I would imagine, too, I would imagine too, that the, the vertically integrated aspect helps you, helps mitigate supply chain issues. A lot, right? I, I mean, this is, you know, obviously not the main reason why we became mm -hmm. vertically integrated. We became vertically integrated to like really hit our unit economics, right? To really be able to build the satellites at a really low cost, right? But, but a good side effect is that, yes, we don't depend on, you know, on suppliers of the aerospace, you know, small set aerospace industry that have their own supply issues, right? And like controlling, you know, your production, controlling the, every sub-assembly, controlling every component that goes into our satellites. And, you know, it really gives us a lot of flexibility, right? If we have to change a component because of supply chain issue, we 
we can go and redesign and change a component, right? And we have. We have done that uh, over the last year to address some supply chain uh, bottlenecks. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a really nice tool, right? I yeah. think this is one of the, you know, really good things that SpaceX done in launch, right? And vertical integration is, mm -hmm. gives them a lot of tools to do what they do. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a long road to become a vertically integrated company. Um, uh, but once you are, you know, it gives you a very significant advantage. You reap the benefits. Yeah. We're pushing up on time here. So we're just going to close out with some lighter questions. And the first one I want to ask you is what is your hottest take or most, most contrarian view on the future of space or the space industry? I don't know, Contraya, but uh, my hottest take is, uh, I would say the following. Uh, I think uh, space industry uh, or the economy in space is going to be a match over the next hundred years, you know, to the economy we have today on Earth. Okay. So if we have a hundred trillion dollar economy on Earth today, I actually see the reasons why uh, over the next hundred and 120 years or so, uh, we will have to reach a point where the economy and uh, cis lunar space, let's say, yeah. matches roughly what we have today on planet Earth. Yeah. And that idea that we're at the beginning of building something that will support, building the infrastructure that will support an economy that's the size of Earth that will be happening outside of the planet, I think it's really one of the things that excites me most about the sensory. Yeah. On numbers, I don't know if we'd be exactly aligned, but I think we take that view as well at Payload directionally about the... Uh, the inflection point, the long-term growth. With, with more time one day, I'll, I'll walk you through the numbers. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Part two, we'll save it for part two. I met one of uh, one of your kids on Zoom last time we talked. Uh, do you think that your kids will work in space? Or I don't know how many kids you have, but. I have one daughter, she's five years old. And the other day, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful age. The other day she came to me and she said, when I grow up, I want to build satellites like you. Awesome. And, uh, and for me, it was like, Right? Yeah. So I'm in, in, I'm in Buenos Aires now with her, uh, next week I'm taking her to our pilot plant in Uruguay and I'm going to put her to work to see, <laughs> see what she can do. <laughs> there you go. You're, there you go. That's actually, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I think it's for me, at least it's, it's pretty powerful that, you know, you built this company out of, out of Buenos Aires and, you know, space very much is still like really concentrated in, 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 um, you know, major economies in the global North, uh, do you, what, what would your career advice be to someone from like the, the global South or from, you know, from, from, I don't know, like a non super wealthy country who like wants to go into aerospace, what would your advice be for them and maybe students, you know, for breaking into the industry? Look, I think the, the single most important thing that you can do when starting any business is try to develop your own, uh, perspective, right? I mean, it's easy to kind of you know, see what's happening around you and say, okay, I can do that. I'm going to go and do that. Right. So I'm going to go and build, I don't know, you know, today you say, okay, oh, look at all these cool earth observation companies, right? I can do that. I can go and build another earth observation company. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to completely miss the boat if you do that. Right? Mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. The one thing that you need to do typically is develop like a perspective that is your own, right? I, I was super lucky in the sense that I came from the IT industry, right? I came from security, I came from software, right? And when I started looking at space, I just couldn't believe that satellites were so expensive. There was no way to convince me that a satellite should be that expensive, right? Yeah. And that was kind of the driving force behind making satellites that are a thousand times less expensive, right? It's like, I couldn't be convinced that you had to actually put that money to put something in orbit because I was coming from a different perspective, right? I think anywhere in the world you are, you know, developing your own perspective is really what allows you to see the same things that other people are seeing and maybe take a different path. Right? Um, today, I think all of this trends that we discussed, you know, rapid manufacturing, computer-aided design, you know, global supply chains, the availability of launch means you can do this from anywhere in the world, right? In, but in the end, what you have to know is you're always going to have to travel to where your customers are, right? And you're going to have to sit next to them because that's the one thing that you can't do from you have to be close to your customers, but the rest you can do anyway. There's a lot to say for part two, you know, spaceship, space tugs. Thanks, Ryan. Alrighty, y'all, that is it for Pathfinder 0012. Hopefully you enjoyed diving down the EO rabbit hole and stay tuned for more from us soon. We'll, uh, we'll continue going deeper and deeper down that hole. 
Pathfinder is powered by Payload, a modern space media brand. And while we have designs on becoming the largest space content company in the galaxy, for now, we publish an industry-leading newsletter, this podcast, and a few other weekly and monthly newsletters. If you like what you heard, subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to this and leave us a five-star rating. It really helps. As always, feel free to reach out to me directly at ryan at payloadspace.com with feedback and constructive criticism or your own financial projections on where the space economy will be 100 years from now. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ryan Doofy. Doofy spelled D-O-O-F-Y, and that's not my legal name. Um, But that will do it for today. I'm Ryan Duffy signing off, and I'll see you back here next week.